Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Now, Dr. Hayhoe is an accomplished atmospheric scientist who studies climate change and why it matters to us here and now. now she's a remarkable communicator who has received the American Geophysical Union's Climate Communication Prize, the Stephen Snyder Climate Communications Award, and the United Nations Champion of the Earth Award, and has been named to a number of lists, including Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Thinkers, and Fortune Magazine's World's Greatest Leaders. Dr. Hayhoe is currently the Political Science Endowed Professor in Public Policy and Public Law and co-directs the Climate Center at Texas Tech University. She has a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the University of Toronto and an MS and PhD in Atmospheric Science from the University of Illinois and has been awarded honorary doctorates from Colgate University and Victoria University at the University of Toronto. So today we'll be exploring the topic of Dr. Hayhoe's recent lecture, Climate Change, Facts, Fictions, and Our Faith, which she presented during our Goodness of Creation and Human Responsibility Conference. Her lecture and others from the conference will be made available through our website. Dr. Hayhoe, Thank you for the wonderful job you did at our conference recently, and thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Several of the things that you uh, brought up during your talk that I found intriguing, that I wanted to explore a little more, was your life story. You're not just a, a well-known scientist. Uh, you are also uh, an, a missionary kid. You're also a pastor's wife. So let's talk about those things. Uh, where did you grow up? Tell us about uh, your, your faith journey as a child. I'm Canadian from Toronto, and I grew up Plymouth Brethren. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the denomination, there is some presence here in the U.S., but it's a little bit bigger in Canada and Europe and England. It was begun back in the 1800s by John Nelson Darby as sort of a reaction against the Anglican Church. So it was the ultimate fundamentalist church of the day in that they said, all right, we're just going to read what the Bible says, and we're going to do what the Bible says. And if the Bible says it, we're going to do it. And if it doesn't say it, we won't. So my family has been brethren pretty much since the get-go. When Darby visited Canada, he preached on my great-great-grandfather's farm in Ontario. Um, and growing up, brethren had its positives and negatives, as any denomination has. But I think one of the things that it actually fostered was an emphasis on individual study and individual investigation. So, so, so did you grow up with a Schofield study Bible? Of course. <laughs> yeah, so Absolutely. our listeners, uh, you know, uh, Plymouth Brethren and Darby would be associated with classic dispensationalism. So, so, so that would be uh, the, the uh, Left Behind series and, and the, uh, you know, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, that would have all, you would have understood where that was coming from very well then. Yes, all of that idea of dispensationalism, where all sort of our apocalyptic theology today comes from, 
a lot of that can be placed squarely at the door of Jay and Darby. And Mark Knowles' classic, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, I think does a really good job of unpacking that connection. And it's almost sort of unintentionally humorous for me growing up in that church to read the profound impact that it's had on American culture, far beyond, I think, what Darby would have ever imagined or intended, mm -hmm. and to the point where it's not even really recognizable as the root it came from. And that actually relates to what I do with climate change, because so many people think, oh, well, you know, when the world gets bad enough, we'll just push the eject button, so to speak, and God will take us home, and it doesn't matter what happens to the planet after we leave. And so that kind of thinking feeds into, well, it doesn't matter. So, you know, so, you know, the majority of the species on the planet have already become extinct because of our actions. So 8 million people die from air pollution every year. You know, so what? It's all going to end anyways. And so that actually feeds ironically into my work today. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of one author that I read who was 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 expressing those sentiments in that he said, uh, if I don't like the wallpaper at a hotel I'm staying in, I don't try to change it. I'm only going to be there that night. You know, I, I don't I don't call the management demanding they change the wallpaper. So that would be, you know, illustrating that that mindset, I think, very well. If I could expand on that, I think you're right. And I would actually categorize that as a modern day form of Gnosticism. Because the Gnostic philosophy, very broadly, there were many different aspects to it that you're more familiar with than I am, but very broadly, it was the idea that the physical didn't matter. It was just the spiritual that mattered. And the Apostle John wrote his letters to, in part, combat that philosophy very strongly. And he said, you know, Jesus came in the flesh. We saw him. We touched him. He was fully human. And that carries through to our disregard for this incredible planet, which God handcrafted for us. It is perfect for life. He gave it to us and gave us responsibility over every living thing on this planet in Genesis 1-1. And yet somehow today we have this modern form of Gnosticism where we don't think the physical matters, even though in the Bible it's very clear that it does. From the smallest aspects of creation that God cares about, you know, that it talks about in the Bible, to the fact that Jesus actually became a physical human and walked on this physical earth. We believe that. So how could this not matter to God? Amen. I think, I think uh, this is something that I think a lot of us who grew up I mean, I grew up in a dispensational setting. I went to a dispensational school mm -hmm. and, and I appreciate so many of the good things that you said uh, that, that we learned uh, from them. So you grew up in Canada, but you don't stay in Canada. Tell us about your, your parents and your family and your missions activity. Where, where did you go? So uh, in the Brethren Church, there's no dedicated pastors or dedicated staff. The idea is that everyone practices the gifts that God has given them. And so my father was one of the teachers in our local church, and he was also a science teacher. And he did not see those two things as incompatible at all. In fact, he, in the tradition of Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others, he viewed the Bible as God's written word and creation as God's expressed word. So um, when I was probably seven or eight, he and some other members of our local assemblies, as we call them, uh, took a trip down to visit some of the missionaries that we supported down in South America. And my dad just absolutely fell in love with the work that they were doing there. And so when he came back, told my mother, we really have to move there. And my mother said, you want to move to Colombia in the early 80s in the middle of the drug trade? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> so he said, okay, fine, we'll just pray about it. So they prayed about it for about two years. And of course, I as a child learned about this afterwards. They didn't tell yeah. us children. And after two years, out of the blue, my dad hadn't mentioned it for a number of months to my mom. Out of the blue, she just felt like it was time. She felt like the Lord was calling them. And so she went to him and she said, you remember you said you wanted us to move down to Colombia as missionaries? Well, I'm ready to go. 
And my dad said, oh, really? <laughs> and so within a very short period of time, they, um, in the Brethren Church, again, it's very traditional to be tent-making missionaries. Mm -hmm. So they found jobs at an international school in the city where they wanted to be based. Um, they got supported by the Fund for Christian Service, which is what the Brethren mm -hmm. Mission Board is called. And um, off we went to Colombia and South America, and we moved down there when I was nine years old. So you, you were uh, an MK then from age nine. Uh, did you how, how many years did you live in Colombia then? We were there for um, several years, I think three, three and a half years. And then my dad decided to come back to Canada and do a PhD in um, science education. So we came back and he was a full-time graduate student during that time, um, which means we we're still living on a very shoestring budget. And then as soon as he mm -hmm. finished his degree, packed up the family and back, we went to Columbia when I was in high school. Uh, so, so we were there all through the eighties. Um, and then I left, I came back home to go to university, left my parents there. And at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't just unrest to the drug trade. It was just turning into unrest everywhere. It was getting to the point where you couldn't take a bus from one city to the other because people would set up roadblocks and it wasn't, it wasn't the drug trade. It was just people would set up roadblocks. They would stop any bus. They would take everybody off. Anybody who looked like they were worth a ransom, they would kidnap. And anybody who didn't look like they were worth anything, they would let them go. So um, some Baptist missionaries that my parents knew well, um, the, the man was kidnapped because he visited their camp, which had been safe for 20 years. And then, you know, he was going to go to the camp and people said, oh, I don't think you want to go. And he's like, oh, it's been safe for 20 years. Why wouldn't I go? Well, he went and he was kidnapped for mm -hmm. two years, which was an incredible ordeal. And then I think what sort of was the final straw for my mother was the fact that my father had risen to become the principal of the um, high school at the school where he worked. And it was one of several bilingual schools in the city. And one of the other bilingual schools failed a student who had some pretty influential connections who decided to kidnap the principal, dig a hole, shoot him and drop him into it. And so when that happened, I feel like that was one of the final straws from my mother. And she said, all right, we're all coming back. So I had been living with my grandparents going to university in, in Toronto. And then at that point, the whole family moved back. So tell us about how your experiences in Colombia may have informed you about understanding the impact of climate change. Mm -hmm. how, 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 how would uh, living among those who are you know, at the margins economically, uh, what, what it, how, how did that impact your thinking in, in this area? Well, in two words, profoundly and personally. So uh, we were fortunate to live in a lower class neighborhood where we had power and water most of the time. And like I said, you know, we had kerosene lamps and we'd fill up the bathtub when we didn't. Um, mm -hmm. People in the church we went to really kind of covered a range from lower middle class to living well below the poverty line. So I had many friends who lived, you know, an hour out of town in the shanty towns that were being built on the side of mountains or in the floodplains where all of your family would work every single day, even you know the young teenagers. And when you earned enough to buy enough bricks to actually create a single room out of bricks, mm -hmm. 
you would have a party and you would invite everybody you knew to the party because you had one room made out of bricks that you mm. and your six siblings and your widowed mother had worked to pay for and build over the last two years. And mm. then my father also traveled quite a bit into neighboring villages because they didn't have a regular pastor or preacher or teacher. So he would do a circuit often into different towns and villages within a couple of hours of where we lived. And there, you know, people living out in the country, very agricultural, um, basically living in homes that they built themselves with no access to power or running water. Um, very rural, um, you know, mud floors and you, you grow your own food. And um, the only way to get in though, the city is often hitching a ride. So we'd always have our Jeep would be full of people just hanging on the back going out. And then we take people, you know, back into the city from there. So, so growing up in those circumstances, and especially as I got older, when I was down there, um, after my dad did his PhD, we went back down there when I was in high school, I would have friends and I could, you know, I'd stay at their houses, I'd travel with them. Um, I would live uh, this lifestyle. And like I said, it's, it's very rich in family. It's rich in faith. It's rich in appreciating the small things that life gives us that we take yeah. for granted so often in our lives here. But when disaster strikes, it is devastating. I mean, it is orders of magnitude worse than it is here. Something here that we just might shrug off to there, it can be life-threatening, life-ending, um, you know, threatening your food supply, your family, your water, your economic stability. It could mean the difference between having a house versus living on the street the difference is just extraordinary. And so, like I said, it, it was not only um, obvious, it was very personal because there were real people, real names, real faces who I knew that this was happening to. So you graduate from high school and you decide to become a scientist, but it's not a climate scientist at first. Tell us about your, your undergraduate experience and that journey. And, and it, let's talk about that. Maybe we'll talk a little more about vocation here in a moment. Yeah. So tell us, you, you go to college, what happens? So my dad, as a science teacher, his passion was astronomy. In fact, he actually did a master's degree in astronomy before he did his uh, PhD in science education. And then after actually just recently, he went back and got an MDiv too. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I grew up, one of my first memories is him taking me to the park when I was probably about four years old. And it felt like it was two in the morning, but it was probably just 10 o'clock at night and uh, showing me how to find the galaxy Andromeda through binoculars. Mm. And in, even in Columbia, he had a massive telescope that he would tie to the roof of the Jeep if he had to. And he would take this telescope everywhere he went and set it up and show people what he called God's art gallery. Um, you know, the rings of Saturn, the craters of the moon, and he had slideshows that he would show people of nebula and galaxies and things like that. So it's probably no surprise that when I went to university, I thought, you know, astrophysics is just the most fascinating thing you could possibly study. I mean, the fact that God created this incredible bounty of beauty, of distant galaxies and quasars and black holes and nebula that we humans couldn't even see until just recently. Yeah, well, I understand because we had Jennifer Wiseman with us oh. a year ago, and of course, you know, with her work with the Hubble telescope, she she came in with you know with slides and pictures that were just the coolest. So yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. So yes. you're not an astrophysicist. What happened? <laughs> That's right. So I was um, here's here was my thinking, and this sort of goes into vocation. 
I had never heard this quite articulated, but I had absorbed over the years growing up in Christian circles from church and youth group and, you know, going to different, you know, inner varsity and things like that, all excellent organizations. I had sort of subliminally absorbed the idea that there was, you know, the God's perfect will, the center of the target, people who mm -hmm. were actively in mission service. So people who were pastors or ministers, people who were missionaries, or people who were medical professionals in the medical in the missionary field, because you're doing that too. And in fact, my dot my uncle is a surgeon who worked in some of the poorest parts of Africa for many years too. So we had that in the family too. So I grew mm -hmm. up with the idea that, you know, if you're if God really wants to use you, you're in full-time Christian service. But if God didn't give you those particular gifts, then you're sort of in the second ring outside that. And you should use the gifts God gave you because they are from God, but you are already sort of, you know, second tier, so to speak. So mm -hmm. I have no aptitude in the medical sciences. I, you know, I have been known to faint at the sight of blood. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I felt like that much as I would have loved to be a mission doctor, I really would have you know, growing up on the stories of, you know, Amy Carmichael and, you know, missionaries mm -hmm. in India, um, I felt like, well, I'm good at science and I really enjoy it. And I'm at least studying God's creation. So why don't I do that? So that was where I was at. And then just before I was about to finish my degree, I needed an extra class and I'd already finished my minor in Spanish <laughs> because that was sort of easy for me. Um, so I looked around and there was this new class on climate change over in the geography department. And I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? And uh, being Canadian, I had learned about it in my years in school in Canada um, that we have issues like deforestation and air pollution and biodiversity loss and climate change. And I always thought of them as issues that environmentalists care about. And then the rest of us wish them well, because, you know, we don't want to pollute God's creation. We don't want to destroy, you know, all of the animals and plants that God created. We want to maintain that and preserve it. So they're taking care of that. That's their job. Um, but those of us who care about people, who care about um, not just saving souls, but ministering to their needs, you know, if you're if someone's hungry, you wouldn't give them a stone. You won't say, you know, go in peace and God bless you if they're starving and they can't feed their family. Those of us who care about people, we do something that's more, you know, more important is what I thought, mm -hmm. <laughs> just to be clear. So I took this class and I was completely shocked because first of all, I didn't realize it was the same physics that I was learning in astronomy and physics. But the second thing I learned is what really changed my life. And I learned that climate change is not only an environmental issue, so to speak, it's an everything issue. Climate change affects people who are poor the most, people who are hungry the most, people who are vulnerable the most, people who are living in precarious situations, who don't have a home for their family, people who live on marginalized lands, like my friends who are building shanty, their, their houses in shanty towns on the side of a very steep mountain. When the floods came, then they're the first to be swept down the mountain. And don't get me wrong, we've always had floods and droughts and heat waves and disasters that always happened. But I learned that climate change is loading the weather dice against us. It's making these events more frequent, more damaging, or more severe. And in fact, the U.S. military calls climate change a threat multiplier. Ah, pause right there. Define, yeah, that's a term you used in your lecture uh, at the conference. Please define threat multiplier. I would be glad to. Thank you for asking. <laughs> a threat multiplier is not something that creates a threat. It takes a threat that already exists, a problem that already exists, and it makes it worse. So climate change does not create poverty. 
It does not create inequality. It does not create hunger, lack of access to clean water, disease, political instability, refugee crises. It does not create these. These are unfortunately the product of our lack of management of the resources God gave us. Here in North America, for just as an example, we throw out over 40% of the food we produce. Mm. There is more than enough food to feed the world. There is no logistical reason in terms of how much food we produce that anybody should be hungry in this world. I'm not saying everybody can be eating, you know, um, massive steaks every day, and it's not good mm -hmm. for us either, <laughs> but there is enough food to go around. And the fact that there's hunger is a flaw in our human systems. So that is, uh, that's on us. But where does climate change come in? Climate change is increasing the risk of the heat waves and the droughts, and it's disrupting the traditional rainfall patterns that they depend on in Africa, for example, where many people are subsistence farmers. And so as a result, on average, since the 1980s, we've seen about $5 billion of crop losses every year on average because of climate change impacts loading the dice against us. And much of those losses are happening in the poorest parts of the world. That's how climate change is taking an already existing problem and making it worse. So you... You made the distinction in your talk between weather and climate. You know, a lot of people will say, just like, you know, this this winter, Texas had a brutal cold snap and the ice storm and all the all the all that came from that. Um, they'd say, well, where's global warming when you need it? Uh, so tell us the distinction between weather and climate. Well, I can't deny that that exact thought has crossed my mind. Where's global warming when you need it? And mm -hmm. after much of Texas was well below freezing and sometimes, you know, below zero degrees, the very mm -hmm. next week in central Texas, it was back up to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah. <laughs> if you want to know wild weather, we have it in Texas. So where does yeah. climate change come in? Well, anytime it's hot outside, we're tempted to say, oh, there's global warming. And anytime it's cold, mm -hmm. we're tempted to say, oh, where's global warming now? But weather is what happens on a single day in a single place. Weather's like a single tree. But climate is the average of weather over at least 20 to 30 years. Climate is like a forest. Mm. So if our brains were actually capable of remembering climate, we'd have to be able to add up the temperature and rainfall and um, you know, uh, wind and everything on every day of the year for 20 to 30 years and fit a trend line to it to see if it's going up or down. And I don't know about you, but to be totally honest, my brain cannot do that. Well, neither can mine. But what, what I hear you saying is this is a classic example of, of missing the forest for the trees. Is that, is that your point? That is absolutely the point. So decade by decade by decade, we see the world getting warmer. But as we go year by year, we still have winter and summer. We've had record cold in Texas in 2011 and 1989, and the power grid did not prepare for those. And they, so that's why they were unprepared now. But at the same time, what we experience where we live is not always warmer temperatures. What we see is what I call global weirding. Like I mm -hmm. talked about before, things are getting mm -hmm. weirder as climate change loads the dice against us. And in fact, um, I was picking up my son from Sunday school a couple of years ago, and I was standing in line behind um, somebody who goes to our church and he was just making conversation because they hadn't let the kids out yet. And he turned to me and said, do you feel like the weather's getting weirder? You know, droughts getting longer, heat waves getting stronger, heavy rainfall mm -hmm. getting more frequent. And I said, yes, I study this and I have seen that it is getting weirder. 
And he said, I knew it. I've lived here for 30 years and I can just tell it's not the same as it used to be. That's how we're seeing climate change affect us in the places where we live. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was a boy growing up in the Ozarks of Missouri, uh, we did not have armadillos. I know you do in Texas, but I can remember the first time I saw an armadillo, you know, dead on the side of the road. I thought, what in the world is that? And then when I realized what it was, what is it doing here? Yes. And, uh, and, and that's indicative of the kind of changes we're talking about. You're exactly right. And, and we see it differently depending on where we live. So for mm -hmm. example, in the Gulf Coast, they're seeing not more frequent hurricanes, but they're seeing much stronger hurricanes. As in somebody who went through Katrina, I know exactly yes. what you're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then out yeah. in the West Coast, we're not seeing more frequent wildfires because most of them are just started by accidental human ignition, but we're seeing that they're burning a lot greater area. Where I live in Texas, we never used to have fire ants. Fire ants are an invasive species that were introduced to the United States, mm -hmm. but they had been kept at bay by our cold winter temperatures in Lubbock because we're actually, we get pretty cold in the winter in Lubbock, but our winters have been warming faster than any other season in Texas. And so a few years ago, one of our friend's grandmother, who was in her 90s, still living on her own, very independent, dedicated gardener, she was out gardening and she saw these ants running around and she thought nothing of it because we had never had fire ants in this part of Texas, never. Mm. So unfortunately, she didn't have great circulation in her legs. So she was standing there gardening. The fire ants ran all over her. They bit her so badly that she ended up in intensive care in the hospital before she realized you know, what was happening. And that's an example of how our warmer winters are increasing our risks where we live. So you see armadillos, we see fire ants in Texas. And where I grew up in Ontario in Canada, we never had ticks. So Lyme disease and ticks, that was, you know, we didn't even know what that was. In fact, one student who was working with me, she got Lyme disease through studying kudzu, through tramping through all of the woods in the Southeast US. And when mm -hmm. she went back to Canada, it took them forever to diagnose it because they'd never seen Lyme disease. Well, fast forward 15 years, ticks and Lyme disease are all over Southern Ontario. Why? Because our, oh, and, and so is kudzu. Kudzu is also in Southern Ontario because our, our cold winters are no longer cold enough to kill off these pests and invasives. Yeah, yeah. Talking about an alien invader uh, in North Carolina, kudzu is, is everywhere. Uh, so I understand about that. So you are a climate scientist at Texas Tech. One thing I think our listeners would will find interesting, and we, I mentioned it at the beginning of our program, you're also a pastor's wife. So uh, your husband, when you married him, uh, was he a pastor then? What happened here? He was not. And if he had been, it probably would have made me think twice. <laughs> I'm not saying it would have been a deal breaker, but I would have thought a lot harder about the decision. Um, so, so we actually met in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which many people will be familiar with InterVarsity. It's a great campus organization. And we went to school in, in graduate school at the University of Illinois, which has a graduate chapter. So it was just a fantastic uh, resource because you have over 100 graduate students in all different fields meeting together to talk about vocation, to talk about how whatever we're studying, whether it's computer science or advertising or engineering or atmospheric science like me or linguistics like my husband, However, what we're studying applies to our faith. And I still remember some of the talks we had from faculty because they would ask Christian faculty to come in and talk about their vocation. And so that 
circling back to what we were talking about before, inner varsity played a key role in helping me understand that there is no inner and outer circle to God's will for your mm -hmm. life. That God knows exactly what he's doing. There's no accident to the skills and abilities and gifts he gives you. A body needs every single part. And it actually says this in the New Testament. I should have gotten this already, but it says that just because you seem to be a part with lesser honor, you know, if you're like a foot as opposed to a hand or a brain, it doesn't mean that you have less value in God's sight because we need feet. Imagine our lives without feet. Imagine if we don't have a gallbladder, or if we don't have a small <laughs> intestine, you know, those are not the most glamorous parts of our body, but we cannot function without them. Yeah. So, so being inner varsity really did a fantastic job, I think, of showing how every gift, every interest, every talent really comes from God and is equal in his sight. So that's um, where I met my husband. Uh, I was the large group coordinator. Um, and he, um, I still remember the first meeting that we had welcoming all the new students. He, would, he had finished his master's degree in Georgia and had come to Illinois to do his PhD. And so I, I was looking for people to greet and I noticed that there was this guy sitting beside my roommate and my roommate would never talk to anybody she didn't know, she just wouldn't. So mm -hmm. I figured I better go over and say hi to him because he wasn't gonna be greeted otherwise. So as he likes to say, I greeted him and he married me. Um, but there, <laughs> there, was, there was a number of years in between there. Um, but he, he was studying to be um, a linguist at the time. He finished his degree, got a job at Notre Dame. That was where we ended up going when we married, but his passion is exegesis. He loves Bible teaching. Um, you know, if you ever went to their Urbana missions conferences that um, InterVarsity mm -hmm. does, I love the way they have the two speakers. So they have a first speaker who does exegesis and they have a second speaker who does practical application. My husband is very much in camp number one on that mm -hmm. um, and very gifted there too. So pretty soon he was teaching adult Bible classes at our evangelical free church that we attended in South Bend. Pretty soon he was teaching every adult Bible class going around <laughs> teaching each different one. Then he was doing a local radio show then he was starting to write a book. His very first book called The Naked Gospel was published by Zondervan over 10 years ago. And now he's writing book number nine. Um, and so he just developed this absolute passion for Bible teaching. And of course, his linguistic background helped with that because he's very good at kind of teasing out the meaning of different words and context. So interestingly, he was on a sabbatical from Notre Dame to write a book, which he needed for tenure. And while he was on sabbatical, he got a call from a church in West Texas that said, we have just lost our pastor. So we need an interim pastor while we do all our interviews for our candidates. Would you be willing to just step in and be our interim teaching pastor? And he said, well, you know, I'm on sabbatical. I could do that, write my book anywhere. So he said, sure. So um, down we came to West Texas. He taught at the church for three months. They interviewed their candidates. And at the end of the interview process, they said, well, we'd actually like to hire you. And he said, mm -hmm. well, I have not applied for the job. And in fact, I have to go back to Notre Dame because you can't just take a sabbatical and then say bye-bye. Yeah, they <laughs> expect you contract. to come back for a while. Yes, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, he, so he said, here's what we'll do. He said, and in addition, you know, you're a small church and I'm a professor and my wife is also um, in, in academia. So here's what we'll do. We'll lay a fleece. We'll go back, finish out our, my time at Notre Dame, and we'll lay a fleece because there's a big university here, Texas Tech University. It just mm -hmm. happens to have a program in applied linguistics and atmospheric science, which is my field. We will, and you know how this works in academia, there's no jobs on the market. He right. said, we'll, we'll send our CVs in 
to the university and we'll see what happens. And I figured this is a pretty safe bet. I figured nobody's going to look twice at two random CVs that get sent into a big public university. <laughs> You're so not going to go to Texas. <laughs> right. I was very sure I was not going to Texas. <laughs> well, yeah. of course, God had other plans. And it took a little while. You know, the wheels grind slowly. But within a year, there was a giant fleece lying on our doorstep saying, go to Texas um, in unmistakable letters. And so that's how we ended up here. Fascinating. Uh, I love that story. That's, that's just wonderful. So we, we're running out of time. So I do want to ask you just a couple of questions. How have you been received in your, among your colleagues, among the scientific community? You're, you're very open about your faith. You're very clear that you're a Christian, uh, that you're a believer. Are, those, are there those who look upon you with suspicion? Or how, 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 is, how have you been received? Well, that story actually picks up right where we left off with the church in Texas. So when people at the church started to get to know what my husband's spouse did, the fact that their pastor's wife was a climate scientist, they got very curious and a little dubious too, because climate change is a very, very politicized issue in the US. I understand that. I hear that every day. So mm -hmm. being polite, they didn't want to walk up to their pastor's wife and say, I heard that you study a load of hooey. Um, that's part of the liberal godless, godless atheist plan to take over the world in the name of the Antichrist. Nobody wants to say that to the pastor's wife. <laughs> so <laughs> instead they would say to the, to the pastor, my husband, um, don't you know that this is all just a natural cycle? And those scientists are just making this up to line their pockets. And my husband would say, well, I don't think that's true, but let me go ask my wife about that and I'll get an answer for you. So he would come to me with questions, good questions, and we would look for answers together if I didn't know, and he would take them back to people. And then after doing this for a couple of years, he's like, why don't you just write a book? I mean, I can make you a list of all the questions people have. Would you just write a book about it? So I said, well, I'd rather write the book with you because you're the one who sort of like, you know, checks the answers to make sure that they really actually address the question people have. So we decided we were going to pitch a book and um, to an agent and see if they might pick it up on, on how climate change matters to Christians. So we did that. Uh, we got a bite. We wrote the book. They got, they published it by Faith Words. And then as it was starting to come out, I started to get nervous because I started to realize, oh my goodness, my colleagues are going to find out I'm a Christian. And as we know, there is a lot of traditional conflict or at least perceived conflict between science and faith. And on climate change, the people who care least about it and who are most vocal in attacking scientists are very sadly often people who self-identify as either white Catholics or white evangelicals, either one. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was sincerely worried that I had worked so hard on my academic career. I was worried I was essentially flushing it down the toilet. I was worried that I would lose the complete respect of my colleagues. And so the book came out though, because I knew, I thought it was, you know, it's very important to, to, to stand up for truth, regardless of what would happen, whatever, what the price would be. And then I sort of nervously showed up at my first scientific conference after the book came out and I'd done a couple of interviews on Fox news about it. So I showed up not knowing what was going to happen. You know, are they going to shun me? Am I going to be drinking my coffee in the corner all alone? And instead, what happened was completely humbling and very unexpected. I would be getting coffee and someone would come up to me and say, I saw your book. It was great. I started a Bible study at our church and we're all reading your book together. And then somebody else, I'd be, you know, in the restroom washing my hands and somebody would come up beside me and say, I bought your book and I gave it to my mother. Thank you so much. This is exactly what I've been trying to tell her for years and she won't listen to me. So 
my colleagues as scientists have been incredibly supportive, not only the ones who are Christians, because it turns out many are. I now have a list of hundreds of climate scientists mm -hmm. who are Christians, hundreds of them. But many who aren't would actually explicitly say to me, I don't share your faith, but I completely support what you're doing. And, and they would even say, I care about it because it affects the poorest people, the most vulnerable people, the marginalized people. That's why I care too. So, so the scientific community, I mean, I can literally count on the fingers of my hands over 10 years, how many people have specifically told me, well, you can't be a real scientist or I don't trust your science because you're a Christian. But unfortunately, I need all my hands and all my toes, all my fingers and all my toes to count the number of Christians who tell me I'm not a real Christian because I'm a scientist on a weekly basis. That is hard to hear. That is really tough. And the fact that you are handling it so well, or are, you seem to handle it so well, is quite remarkable. And that, that's, that's a great question for us to close with uh, in that you know, Southeastern Seminary is a Southern Baptist uh, institution. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And as Southern Baptist, we do understand how economic and socio socioeconomic and political issues can cloud the judgment of otherwise very good people. You know, we, we as Southern Baptists have made some, I mean, the origin of our denomination uh, has, has, has a, is a very tragic story over, over the whole issue of slavery. So these are so many of the people who, who are disagreeing with you. If you knew them on a daily basis, you'd see them in a Sunday school class, they'd be just be wonderful. And yet on, on this issue or something of this, uh, it, it's very distorted and that's, that's hard to take. So how can we have a conversation that models the love of Christ? How do we do that? Well, that is a very interesting link you just drew because there is an evangelical Christian who's a historian. His name is Jean-François Mouhol, and he has studied the relationship between climate change and slavery. And what he's found is he would read the letters to the editor and the comments that people would publish in the newspaper back in the pre-Civil War era. And then he compared that to the letters to the editor and the comments that people have published today in support of continuing a fossil fuel based economy. And what he found is in some of those letters, you could literally take out slavery and replace it with fossil fuels. The same economic arguments were being used to argue for both of them. And of course, everyone wants a healthy economy. Of course, everyone wants people to have good jobs to be able to feed their families. Of course, we all want this. But do we want it at the price of truth and justice? And I think the answer to that is we do not. And in that answer, Christians have always led the way. They've led the way in the anti-slavery movement. They've led the way in civil rights. They've led the way in championing the rights of, again, the poorest and most vulnerable in some of the most remote parts of the world. We know that we are called to, to walk justly and to show love. And so when I talk with people about climate change, I, I, I don't assume that they're, that they're motivated by bad reasons. I assume they're motivated by good reasons. I assume that they want to be um, a good person. I assume that if they're a Christian, they have a new heart. I assume that they have the Holy Spirit living in them. I actually have some people on my list who I pray for along those exact lines who it's really been impossible to have a positive conversation with because they're so steeped in their political ideology. Their, their um, ideological glasses, so to speak, are so thick they can't see past them. Mm -hmm. I talked in my presentation about how I really see what I do is what it talks about in the book of James, where it's like, we're like the man who looked in the mirror and forgot what he looked like. 
went away and forgot what it looked like. So I see myself as holding up the mirror and some people's glasses are so thick, they literally can't see who God has made them. But I, I still have people who I pray for along those lines because I believe if they are Christians and we don't know, we can't see someone's heart. But if they are, then God's spirit is speaking to them. It might be at a very faint whisper, but it's there, even in the back of their brain. Um, so starting with the idea that people want to do the right thing, that they want to be a good person is really important to a constructive conversation. Because if somebody comes up to you wagging a bony finger of judgment, telling you that you're doing something wrong, especially if it's something you didn't think was wrong, mm -hmm. we immediately, our, our human reaction is just to say, oh yeah, well, fine. I'm going to double down on that then. So starting from that place of mutual respect of not making any negative assumptions. And then the next assumption I make is first of all, they they're doing what they think is right. The second assumption I make is if they're truly Christians, they believe what the Bible says and we can have a conversation about what the Bible says. And I believe that if they really understand what the Bible says, then they too would understand that they're the perfect person to care, not despite of who they are or not because they have to change of who they are, but because of who they already are, because of who God has already made them. So God has already made us perfect children of God. Our behavior isn't perfect. We all know that <laughs> we have a lot of a lot of behavior improvement to work on as we are continually being renewed. But God has created a has has conducted a, a heart surgery, so to speak, at our core, giving us that new heart, that new hardware, so to speak, that we need to truly understand who we are. And if we approach conversations like that, not every conversation is going to end well because some people, you know, the, their ears are stopped, their eyes are closed, as Jesus talks about with the Pharisees. Sometimes the most religious people are the hardest people to talk to, and Jesus saw this and talks about this. But many others are able to look, to think, to ponder. And as, as one Christian said to me, he said um, he had been very skeptical before and he followed me on social media very quietly, once in a while asked a few questions. And then finally, he said this to me, he said, you dragged my sorry deniers ass to the truth. <laughs> he said, <laughs> and he went on to say how, as a Christian, he thought in truth was important, and so that's where he ended up. And I just that is, that is my favorite line that I've ever received. That's a great story. Well, it's on that hopeful note we want to say thank you, Dr. Hayhoe, for taking the time to have this conversation, and uh, we're encouraged by the very exciting ministry that the Lord has given you. Uh, in the area of climate change. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.